Every haunted place has a story with a dark past. This is Ghost Encounters Podcast. Due to the graphic and violent things discussed on this episode, listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, all you spooky people, to the 18th episode on the second season of Ghost Encounters Podcast. I am paranormal investigator Justin Torok. And I'm Jordan, the group scientist. I'm Hannah, and I am enthusiastic. Happy Pride Month, everyone. Uh, we actually just launched some Pride merch. It's beautiful. You should buy some. I bought all of it. You did. <laughs> literally all of it. It's like $175. You literally bought a multiple of each one. <laughs> I had to. Uh, we had a couple other orders come in, which is very exciting. Oh, yay. Um, there's a mix of stuff there. You know, if you're not part of the LGBTQ plus community, there's uh, one on there that, one or two on there that you could wear because you're an ally. And the other ones, you know, are very funny if you are part of the community. Yeah, so. they're super great. <laughs> I love them so much. <laughs> so definitely go check out the Pride merch, ghost-encounters.com. Click on the spooky shop. There is also a shirt specifically for podcast listeners. There is a Ghost Encounters podcast shirt. Should we tell them what's on it? Or should we let them find out if they're on their own? No, tell them. Tell them. All right, so there is a UFO picking up a skeleton. It's so pretty awesome. Cool. It's so cool. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah, so if you're a fan of the podcast, obviously you are because you're listening. You really got to go check it out and get yourself one of the shirts. Don't worry. If you do buy some of the merch, it does not come with a ghost. Nothing's attached to it. They are not cursed. However, this episode is cursed because we are talking about cursed objects tread with caution in the realm of cursed objects where darkness weaves in the tendrils through the fabrics of reality these accursed relics hold secrets that defy reason and provoke primal dread their curse creeps into the hearts of the unwary bending fate into its twisted will from cursed paintings and jewelry to cursed relics and ordinary objects these possessions bear witness to the fragility of existence A reminder that the line between the mundane and the malevolent is easily blurred. Beware, for to cross paths with a cursed object is to dance with darkness itself, where nightmares become reality and death is imminent. Jordan, what was the first cursed object that you looked up? So I chose to talk about the Kohinoor diamond, which translates to Mountain of Light in Persian. Allegedly, it was gifted to Britain over 150 years ago. In 1850, the huge jewel traveled more than 4,000 miles and was given as a gift to Queen Victoria. It is claimed the young ruler of North India was imprisoned and forced to sign the treaty which specified that Queen Victoria be given the jewel at the age of just 10 years old. Could you imagine you're sitting there and somebody is literally looking at like all these adults are in the room and they're like, yeah, you're going to give this diamond away. Like one of the most prized possessions of your country. So you're 10 years old making the decision to get rid of something that your country claimed. That's insane to think yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. Like your shitty. brain's not fully cooked when you're 10. Exactly. It's pretty shitty, to be honest. But mm-hmm. from the source, Vulcan's Forge Custom Fine Jewelers, the Kohinoor Diamond is a 186 carat diamond. Some sources said it's around 105 carats since it's been cut down over the years. With a curse affecting only men, and according to folklore, a Hindu description of the diamond warns that, quote, he who owns this diamond will own the world, but will also know all its misfortunes. Only God or women can wear it with impunity. Wow. That's cool. Throughout history, the gem was traded around various cultures such as Hindu, Mongolian, Persian, Afghan, and Sikh rulers, who all fought bitter and bloody conflicts to own it. 
Every prince who has been in possession of the diamond would ultimately lose his power and in some situations his own life. For over 500 years, the stone changed hands in gruesome battles and vicious coups. A series of kingdoms and empires all collapsed, one behind the other while owning the Kohinoor diamond. The height of this cursed object can be seen in the fact that even global empires crumbled below the weight of the curse. The British East India Company owned the jewel since the annexation and disbandment of the Sikh Empire, but only seven to eight years following the looting of the jewel, the revolt of 1857 literally destroyed the East India Company from its roots. Brothers were set against brothers and sons overthrowing their fathers. The history and lives of rulers who owned the Kohinoor diamond were filled with violence, murder, manipulation, torture, and treachery. Whether or not people believe the curse of the Kohinoor diamond, the history of the stone is undeniable. And the threat of the Kohinoor curse is enough to make people cautious. The blood-soaked list of mighty monarchs who owned the Kohinoor begins in the late 13th century with Sultan Allah ad who may be the inspiration to the fairy tale Aladdin. He killed his uncle the king to gain rule over Delhi and a legendary hoard of treasure, including a remarkable huge rose-cut diamond, which was assumed to be the Kohinoor. When the invading Mughals descended from Tamerlane and Ganges Khan spread remorselessly from Turkey and invaded India, this exceptional diamond was given to them at the defeat of Agra in 1526. This is how the jewel came to be owned by Human Yan, who was the ruler of the Mongol Empire, but spent most of his life in exile with the Persian king, his ally, to whom he supposedly gave the diamond as a gift. Documentation does not exist to prove this, so perhaps its possession was kept a sacred Mongol family secret down the line. Otherwise, it is difficult to explain how it reemerges in Delhi in 1739. As the story goes, failed to unravel the hiding place of the fabulous diamond in his turban to the conquering Persian during a polite exchange of headdress. The stone supposedly received its name when Nadir Shah gasped Kohinoor, or Mountain of Light, at the gleaming treasure before him. When the tyrant Nadir Shah was assassinated, bloody chaos broke out amongst his Persian descendants, were either murdered or executed to gain control of the vast Persian empire. The huge diamond was given as a gift of gratitude by the most successful of the Persian descendants, Shah Rukh to his grandfather's ex-general, ally, and ruler of Afghanistan, Ahmad Shah. In return, Ahmad and the Afghan army helped Rukh control and bring peace to Persia. But in 1773, when Ahmad died, Rukh lost any power over his nation, leaving him the captive of the bloodiest character in the Kohinoor story, a terrifyingly sadistic person called Aga Muhammad Khan, who had gained absolute control of Persia and lost no time in torturing Rook until, one by one, he gave up his remaining treasures. Convinced that Shah Rook was lying to him and that he had not given the Kohinoor to Afghanistan, Mohammed Khan had Rook bound to a chair with his head shaved and a circle of paste molded to his scalp. Mohammed Khan personally poured molten lead into a gory crown. That is insane. He straight up game Game of Thrones that guy. <laughs> yeah, he did. Like like they got in the beginning, Khal Drogo. How yeah. bad? Was oh shit, that I forgot hurt? about that part. Yeah. I that forgot was... that with like um Targaryen peoples and whatever. Yeah, yeah it was yeah. uh Viserys. There we go. Viserys. I can't remember everybody's name. That that's a tough that one. It's so bad. And you like you take it off and like all your skin just Ugh. comes with it. Just yeah, it would like cook. I bet that smelled incredible. Oh Oof. my god. Only you would say something like that. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> As this brutal torture failed to elicit the Kohinoor, Muhammad Khan gave up. 
but Rook obviously died soon after. Over in Afghanistan, the Kohenor passed through bloody fighting following the death of Ahmad Shah. One of his grandsons, Zaman, managed to keep the Great Diamond safe from his dangerous brothers, carefully embedded in in the plaster wall of his prison cell for years. Well, How the hell did you hide it? Like, you know what I mean? Like, It's not fitting up his ass. So. <laughs> oh, my God. I just, like, think, like, I'm thinking of, like, a prison cell. Like, did they not have, like, stone, stone walls? Like... We cells? do like That's like crazy. the Shawshank Redemption. You just oh, yeah. chip it. Yeah. You chip it that and then you hang thing. a poster over okay, it. Okay, okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Until he struck a deal with his ruling brother, Shah Sudra, handing over the Kohinoor in return for his personal safety. The diamond was to be pivotal in the transfer of power once again, when in 1810, Suja and Zaman together fled Afghanistan to seek sanctuary with the Sikh ruler Ranjit Singh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, the Lion of Punjab, who tried various attempts to extort the famous diamond as the price of sanctuary, keeping Suja in his residence until he reluctantly handed it over. The Lion of Punjab was enormously proud to possess the incomparable Kohinoor. He had it set in a great armlet flanked by a pair of lesser but beautiful pear-shaped diamonds and wore it on his sleeve above the elbow. When he died in 1839, the diamond passed to his successor, Dulhip Singh, I hope I said that right. Rival British, French, and Russian empire construction was beginning to squeeze the region. Britain's diplomats made a formal treaty of friendship with the regents of the boy king to stabilize their interest in the region. But the nation spiraled into a civil war amongst the various tribal chiefs of both Sikh and Muslim, which the British army put an end to by force, annexing the Punjab and imposing imperial rule by Queen Victoria and the surrender of all its treasure as a war reparation. Historical records indicate the diamond was acquired by the British in 1849 and given to Queen Victoria, who wore it as a brooch. To heed its legend, the diamond has since only been worn by women, including Queen Alexandria of Denmark, Queen Mary of Teck, and the late Queen Elizabeth, who we know as the Queen Mother, wife of King George VI. In 1936, the stone was set into the crown of Queen Elizabeth. The British royal family were obviously aware of the curse of the Kohinoor, and from the reign of Queen Victoria, the Kohinoor diamond has always gone to the wife of the male heir to the British throne. Currently, the diamond is kept in the Tower of London Jewel House, and I think King Charles wore it at the coronation because I know that there was a lot of issues with the fact that Camilla was going to wear it. Like, you know, people Everybody don't fucking hate Yeah, Camilla. nobody likes right. her because she's supposed to be the one that was going to wear it according to, you know, obviously this rule right. that they made up. But I'm pretty sure he wore it because I remember my, my sister Taylor was like, holy shit, he has a Conor diamond on. And that's how I found out about this cursed diamond. Yeah. My sister. Well, that's not good at a man. Yeah, so like I'm super. Why? Why scared? Did he wear it? I know. I want to know. Maybe yeah. he was just like, try me. Um. Anyway, India and Pakistan have made claims to the stone, and in 2000, the Taliban also stated the jewel belonged to Afghanistan, but each time the claim has been rejected. On the Tower of London website, it is described as a quote unquote symbol of conquest. The stone is widely regarded as a symbol of Britain's imperial past, with some Indians believing it was stolen. Yet in 2016, the Indian government said the diamond was not stolen, and as we said before, it was not forcibly taken and was given as a gift. That's like... They that's really like, have this huge trail of when and where this diamond was. Yeah. It's insane. It's crazy that they could keep that much documentation of this diamond. Yeah. 
in that kind of time frame. Yeah. Like, with all this mess. had it, like, there was bloodshed. Yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah. I guess... I'll leave it to a woman to actually keep shit together. Like yeah, right. Queen Victoria, Queen Victoria was a bad bitch. Like, oh, she yeah. was a really badass. Bad. Yeah. She straight up plucked her family from the fucking womb and placed them on thrones. Yeah. Like the badass that she was. And now she's like, you guys aren't going to wear this freaking diamond, this cursed diamond. I'm going to wear it. And then I'm going to give it to all your, your wives. Yeah. Like that's so crazy. She's such a badass. Mm-hmm. And she really loved her husband. Yeah. She really loved him. Yeah, she did. I, I remember we talked stories. about that. We did. That's, uh, I love yeah, that. that was all you. It we was. I know like, like 10 things now. <laughs> <laughs> the funeral things that she put in place mm-hmm. and all oh, that kind yeah. of stuff. Oh, yeah. The, her the whole Valentine's life, Day or something episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. When Albert died. Oh. We're well, learning. She was a baddie in this story. So. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Well, Hannah, on to you. What was the cursed. Well, I shouldn't even ask this because. The reason I thought of doing a Cursed Objects episode is because you always talked about this next object, and you were so passionate about it, so I cannot wait to hear the full story. Tell us what this object is. Okay, um, so I talk about the Crone of the Catskills like once a week, <laughs> because I, I read about this, I thought I read about this pretty recently. Um, but it turns out that the story is like eight years old. Oh, cool. Um, and I, so eight years not, ago. <laughs> it's not that long ago. No, no, no. It's not that long ago. Like, this is relatively modern. Yeah. Like, I remember the story cool. breaking. I remember reading about it. I was sitting very bored at my job at Bosco. Oh, no. <laughs> Assembly lining photos and, like, sneaking Reddit posts. <laughs> so I uh, I found this story initially a bunch of years ago when it was originally posted on uh, Reddit's paranormal board. And I it, it just scared the shit out of me, man. Cool. It scared the living shit out of me. And it has remained as a recurring horror in my brain to this day and i'm really stoked to talk about it um i'm stoked to bring a little bit of like kind of modern appalachian folklore in (laughs) um i like i don't know if this is technically appalachian because it's like it comes from um the Catskills, mm-hmm. the Crone of the Catskills. It comes from the Catskills, which is a mountain region in New York. And this is it. it the Catskills and the Appalachian Mountains, the Appalachian region, um, they have a little bit of overlap because the Appalachian region is actually huge, and it stretches from like the Catskills in New York all the way down to Mississippi, like oh, wow. a big diagonal yeah. line following the Appalachian Mountains. Um, and Appalachian, like, spooky folklore is kind of... It's all in, cool stuff. Yeah, and it's enjoying, like, a little bit of a moment. And there's, like, podcasts talking about it. Like, you guys, I don't know if you ever heard Old Gods of Appalachia, which is very cool. It's, like, Lovecraft and Appalachian. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I've never heard of that. Oh. I don't know anything about the Appalachian or Appalachian Mountains. It's, um... The, the Appalachian subculture is kind of like uh, the descendants of predominantly Scottish, English, Polish, and German immigrants who settled out in the hollers of the Appalachian region. Um, and not only did they bring their whole mishmash of unique superstitions and folklore and this like 
interesting homespun granny magic. But (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Uh, But being out in the deep, dark middle of nowhere in this vast mountain chain where you don't even know what's in those trees, man. Um, But you it, it brewed up this whole bunch of fun, new, spooky shit. Like, we got Bigfoot. We got the Brown Mountain Lights. I don't know if you guys talked to it. I don't know. Not I don't yet. know. But uh, we got the Flatwoods Monster, the Bell Witch, and Mothman. Oh, the Bell, Bell Witch. Witch. Yeah, that's the, the one that's when we talked about. I listened to that episode. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think that shit's super cool. Right? Um, but now, now we have the Crone of the Cat skills. Um, the original Reddit post is called... Me and a friend found this creepy statue while hiking, and now strange things are going on. Anyone know what this is? <laughs> oh, that's freaking Typical, crazy. Typical, like, Reddit title. <laughs> that's the internet. That's, that's, like, uh, that's me. But where else would you go to try to find answers, right? Yeah, like, actually, who are you going to call? <laughs> <laughs> the people online. <laughs> yeah! We're going we're gonna to take this to Google. Um, but the story goes that there were these two guys out hiking in the Catskill Mountains near Sundown Forest, which is a 30,000-acre swath of the southeast Catskills. That's a lot. It is. Uh, huge area. Massive area. They strayed from the hiking trail they were on to explore some caves. While messing around in the caves, they found a recently abandoned fire and standing upright in a little nest of dry fallen leaves, they found the actual scariest little statuette I have ever seen. Um, let me let me paint you a word picture. Yeah, of this describe thing. what this crone looks like. <laughs> uh, the crone of the cat skills is maybe a foot tall. I couldn't find a photo exact with scale. dimensions. Yeah, yeah, uh, but it's maybe a foot tall, roughly carved out of dark wood, and carved wearing a kind of like a floor-length dress or robe. Um, It could be old. It looks a little bit weathered and handled, but it's smooth. Um, And notably, it has three iron nails hammered into each eye. What the fuck? (laughs) And a little noose made out of dirty nylon cord around its neck. No wonder these people posted on Reddit, like, what the fuck is this stuff? Absolutely. Don't go wandering off the trail. (laughs) A. (laughs) And don't go wandering into caves. B. (laughs) The sins pile up. Who put it there? Why is it there? Uh, nobody no knows. knows. That is so fucking but creepy. But someone was there recently if they found yeah, the fire. Yeah, yeah. That's um, so creepy. But they, let me guess, they took it. Wait, wait, wait for the reveal. I hate this. <laughs> I hate this so much. Uh, it's terrible. I'm terrified of this thing. Um, there are some stories among the hikers and the locals that there are Satanists or devil worshippers who go into the woods and the caves and do rituals, sacrifice animals, and, like, the whole bit. Yeah. Um... The poster decided that the statue was too freaky and should 100% be left alone. Good choice. Yes. But his friend is a non-believer and took it home. What the fuck? I bet he's a believer now. <laughs> we got there. Uh, man, like, it's never a good idea to take the spooky shit off. No. Yeah, no. never. Don't, don't you don't touch it. anything like, that looks like it's satanic at all. Yeah, no. man. A, gonna haunt you. B, it, like, it's disrespectful. If you're looking true. at it as, like, a religion, yeah, true. you know, this is somebody's religious object, maybe don't touch it. Yeah. Also, maybe it's evil, maybe don't touch it. <laughs> like, someone was there recently, they're going to be back. Yeah. Know it's gone. Don't touch it. Buddy touched it. 
after several days, uh, the friend who removed the statue called the poster and said that real weird shit was going down in his house. Um, the statue was moving by itself from room to room and bringing with it wherever it went the smell of like swampy, stagnant water. Ew. Uh, his dog wouldn't go near it, and if the dog was brought too close to it, it would pee on the floor. Oh my god. Um, and almost every night, the friend was awakened by banging on his walls and on his door at all hours of the night. Um, however, when he would open up the front door or, you know, look outside, uh, his motion lights hadn't been triggered, and the only thing in his driveway and front yard were his feelings of immediate regret. Oh, well. <laughs> Yeah. That is freaky. <laughs> it's terrible. I would be very upset. Um, the final straw, upon being awakened by his dog's frantic barking, was that he found muddy footprints from bare feet leading down the hall from his bedroom to where the statue was sitting Holy in his shit. living room. <laughs> That's creepy. Something had been walking from the swamp where this fucking thing came from. Uh-huh. Uh, as he approached the statue, he heard, quote-unquote, breathing like a grandpa with a tracheotomy. That's very specific. <laughs> That's, That's yeah, very man. specific. Yeah. Just, ooh. Uh, and after that, he and the dog moved in with the original poster. <laughs> yeah, oh. he, he just straight up left the house. He's like, nope, just enough. Just move the object and see what it, like, yeah. move that out of the house first. Yeah. I would think, that would be the first thing I would do. I'd be yeah. like, nope, gonna I'm gonna wrap this thing in a box, and I'm gonna wrap the box in some chains, and this is going into a lake. Yeah, just yeah. straight to the bottom. Away, it's already a swamp thing, it's fine. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, the statue was eventually disposed of, after a fashion, um, uh, these two guys sent the statue to Greg and Dana Newkirk, who were the founders of the Traveling Paranormal and Occult Museum. Cool. Yeah. That's neat. I've, I've never, like, I've heard of them, obviously I knew this story, but I've yeah. never been. I would love to go. I think that's super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I found several sources that say that the crone eventually manifested as, like, a shriveled old crone with these big glowing eyes crouching in the dark in like oh. a corner of the room but I can't find like the original source for that. Gotcha. I like I looked the the website for the uh, the traveling museum they they say that this happened but I don't see it in the original story that they posted about it. I think it. we should just go and see for ourselves. Yeah road trip, <laughs> road trip. I'm gonna be really scared. Me too, I'll go. <laughs> I'm really scared of this thing, man. Please protect me. (laughs) Um, But I couldn't find it. Uh, The original Reddit post didn't say anything. The original post by uh, the Newkirks didn't say anything. Uh, But I found several other places where I was reading about this that it manifested as like this actual physical entity that was the crown. That's crazy. I would be scared shitless. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit too, like, The Shining for me, yep. you know? But, yeah, I can't find it, and I'm super mad about it. Once the Newkirks uh, acquired the crone, they started to experience some of the same phenomena that the two original guys who found the thing did. Um, they heard the banging on the walls. The, the crone would, like, move itself around. 
the first night that they had it, they heard something like clatter in another room in the house. And when they went in, they were like, what is that? And they noticed that the little plastic Jesus that was hanging on the crucifix in, in their room had been ripped off and tossed into a corner. But the crucifix stayed on the wall Nuts. with one of Jesus's little plastic arms still attached. What the That's fuck? Crazy. So yeah, something had ripped Jesus off and chucked him in the corner. And like across from where Jesus was, was the crone sitting on there. And they were like, That's oh so man. Cool. Yeah, dude, scared shitless. Wow. Um, but they, after that, they were like, oh man, this thing's gonna be a problem. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> uh, Usually when they have, when because they get a lot of paranormal artifacts. Yeah, sure. When they get stuff that acts up, usually they like set it down and they talk to it like they're talking to the entity. Right. Like, hey, um, if we gave you away to a priest, you would be exercised and cast into wherever you go. And I'm assuming that's bad for you. Or somebody would throw you into a burn barrel and your little, you know, your little house, your little reliquary yeah. would be destroyed. And that would also potentially be bad for you. We are going to let you stay here with us, provided you act right, or you go in the box. That is so funny. They're like, we're giving you an ultimatum. <laughs> yeah. Listen, talk or you're going to gonna die. It's like, talk yeah. to child. It's like act yeah, right, exactly. or... <laughs> uh, but this thing really didn't want to act right. Uh, they continued to have like escalations in the banging, in the lights flickering. They started noticing wet and muddy footprints on their furniture. But the their final straw was they heard something clatter again in a different room, and they went in and found the crone that was was it was sitting on the floor, kind of next to their TV stand, right? Mm-hmm. And so Greg goes over to pick it up and he hears Dana scream and he looks up and she's standing behind him holding up the TV, oh, which shit. had gone to fall on him That's as he picked up the crone. That's insane. And they're like, now she goes in the box. <laughs> Fucking crone, bitch. Yeah. So they put the crone in the box um, and activity calmed down when, you know, it noticed that they were not bluffing and it, I guess it didn't want right, to be in a box. Yeah. And after that, after it kind of calmed down, they took it on tour with them with the traveling museum. I wouldn't do, like, I wouldn't oh travel my God. with that thing. I, no, I'd be like, nope, you yeah. get... All of a sudden your tire's going to fly off. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah. Or your car loses control and you go off a cliff. Yeah. You yeah. Know, extreme. <laughs> there were, there were some... There were some things that I saw where it was like, oh, the crone has caused a car accident, or the crone did this, the crone did that. I, but they're uh, like under a paywall on the Patreon mm. for the, the the paranormal museum, and I I'm like, man, I don't have the Patreon money. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so it it exists. I just haven't seen it. Um, it looks like they've also done some science on it, which seems super cool, and um, it's on tour. So you might potentially see it on tour. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's it's reported that when sometimes when people look at it, like their eyes start to burn in water, like it doesn't want to be looked at. Oh. Um, although psychics can have very visceral reactions to it. Like, do you know who Chip Coffee is? I love Chip Coffee. Chip if I ever Coffee. met him, I would geek the fuck out. Oh, he I, is like my Chip idol. Coffee. Yeah, he's cool guy um he legit he was in the room with that thing and he wanted to give it an exorcism 
Um, definitely bad vibes coming off it. And another psychic who I don't know, uh, April Slaughter, read it, and she... Uh, there's been some debate about what this thing is, yeah. right? Like, what exactly it is. And she says that it's been used a couple of times and in a couple of different ways. Um, hence the sort of mixed ages of the materials. Yeah. Like, the, the statuette is one age, the nails are another age, and the noose is, like, I, I guess the newest thing on there. It's okay. like paracord or something. Um, but she says that the purpose isn't always the same except it is definitely to put a very nasty hex on somebody um and the entity that lives inside it is also the same uh even though she doesn't exactly say what it is yeah uh she just says that whatever it actually is uh the entity knows that she can see it and knows that she can explain the purpose of it and is super not happy about it. Oh, oh shit. That's crazy. <laughs> and that is, that's the Crone of the Cat skills, which is like, it haunts my nightmares. Interesting. I never heard of that. That's such an yeah. interesting story. And it's a weird Crazy one. that somebody found it. That's really cool. I want to see this freaking thing. <laughs> I really it, do. Man. Like, I mean, uh, well, go see it on tour. I <laughs> Anywhere. Just. Because if you look up, if you look up photos, it's really, really scary. <laughs> <laughs> I, um,. Yeah, the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Not in my oh, house. Oh, fuck no. Yeah. Look at it. It looks exactly like what you think it's going to look like, but oh. just the bad vibes coming off if it. I saw, first off, if I saw the nails in the eyes like that, I would not have touched it. No. I would not have touched it. Oh, no. see, it says Paranormal and Occult Museum on this yep. picture. Cool. Yep, they have it. Awesome. Um, I'm oh, glad. fuck that. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad it's not in my house. <laughs> I'm not bringing that thing near me. Nope. Too cursed. Well, would you consider that piece a piece of art? Ooh, I don't know. Maybe. Sculpture. I guess folk art. I would. Folk yeah. art. I definitely would, I feel like. See that at the flea market. Well, the next one here is a piece of art. It's called the Hands Resist Him Painting. Within the realm of art, an unsettling masterpiece emerged. An eerie painting that sent chills down the spines of all who beheld it. The Hands Resist Him, a creation by artist Bill Stoneham, captivated the world with its haunting depiction of a young boy and a doll. But beneath the surface of its brushstrokes lay a mysterious power, a curse that would unravel the lives of those who dared possess it. Whispers of the painting's curse spread like wildfire, fueled by the tales of strange and unexplained events that befell its owners. Nightmares plagued the sleep of those who dared to gaze in the young boy's eyes while disembodied whispers echoed through the halls, as if the doll's painted lips carried secrets of its own. Countless accounts of peculiar happenings emerged. A sensation of being watched, objects moving on their own, and an overwhelming feeling of dread that clung to the very air. Some even claimed that the figures within the painting shifted positions, their expressions morphing into twisted grins as the night descended. As the hands resist him passed from owner to owner, each found themselves ensnared in a web of inexplainable occurrences. Bill Stoneham, the artist behind the mysterious creation, remained tight-lipped about the true origins of the curse. Was it an intentional invocation of dark forces or an unintentional channeling of the supernatural? The truth remained shrouded in mystery, concealed within the depths of the painting itself. And so the hands resist him painting continues its haunting journey leaving a trail of mystifying events 
and shattered lives in its wake. Can't believe the artist is just like not saying a thing about this painting. It's creepy. Yeah, is he still alive? I did not look that up. So oh, I do not... that's okay. I because <laughs> I've I've heard of this painting and I've seen this painting. I have never seen it. Let's I just look looked it up. I just yeah. looked it up. It's creepy. It's as creepy, fuck. right? It's, it's creepy great. As fuck. Boy, like the hands in the background too. Like honestly, this is something that I would probably have in my house because I like stuff like this. That, well, like, that's how he is too. His house is full of yeah. scary <laughs> shit. I, I I like your scary shit. I'm normal. I have like sea glass pictures and happiness and butterflies and shit. But it's so creepy because like the painting makes me feel like the boy's terrified and that there's these other forces just like surrounding him. The, yeah. The whole like behind him thing is what creeps me out. Well, the yeah. girl's I think the one that's on the side, the girl's face is like frowning and super freaky too. I don't know. The whole thing's fucking freaky. Yeah, it's a very strange painting. Um, February of 2000, it was posted on sale on eBay, along with a description implying that it was indeed haunted. Ooh. Yeah, people say like this painting literally like comes to life and changes. I'm surprised and moves. that like Zach Baggins or like somebody that like has some sort of museum hasn't right. snatched it. Yeah. Right. It is now currently housed at the Perceptions Gallery in Iona Street. I'm assuming that's in California. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. So somebody is somewhere. At least it's in some It's museum. on display. That's yeah, cool. Because that's, cool. that's yeah. yeah. That's like a, a national treasure. <laughs> creepy freaking paintings. Creepy freaking dolls. Creepy freaking statues. And a gem that apparently is associated with so much death and bloodshed. bloodshed yeah. We are off to a great start on yeah. these cursed objects. And on that note, we're going to take a short break. Get a glass of water, get a breather or something. Yes, light the sage. And, uh, yeah, light <laughs> some sage, and we'll be right back. The Spooky Shop is now open for Ghost Encounters merch. Visit ghost-encounters.com and click on Spooky Shop. This episode is brought to you by The Colony Meadery. If you haven't tried mead yet, it's alcohol made from honey, and it's the fastest-growing alcoholic beverage in the United States. It's all-natural, totally gluten-free, and delicious. And one of the best meaderies in the world is right here in the Lehigh Valley. Stop in and try a flight of meads, grab some bottles or cans to go, and experience some of the best booze in the world. They've got flavors ranging from tart and quaffable lemon laws and Wu-Tang Cran, to cinnamon vanilla series of tubes and even the sweet heat of their mango habanero. Learn more at either location or at colonymeadery.com. Ghost Encounters podcast and show is sponsored by Phoenix Fire Media. Bring the heat to your online presence with their expert social media marketing, photography, and video productions. Visit phoenixfiremedia.com. If all you spooky people are enjoying the Ghost Encounters podcast, hit subscribe and give us five stars. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Ghost Encounters PA. To watch full episodes of the Ghost Encounters show, Visit ghost-encounters.com. And we are back. Jordan, I see we have another cursed gem. What was the next one you have for us? I'm going to talk about the Hope Diamond. Huge diamond. Yeah. Yeah. And a big deal. So... As we know, it's arguably one of 
the most famous gemstones in the world. The Hope Diamond is now only 45.52 carats. It's a grayish blue diamond that was first discovered in the 1600s in an Indian mine. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. It's still huge. Yeah. 45 I, carats is fucking huge. <laughs> I, I saw it uh, last year when I went to the Smithsonian. Um, and it's in a huge glass case. A nice by, thick one. Yeah. Surrounded by you know, bulletproof and all that stuff. There's a security <laughs> guard. The museum's free, so if you're in the area of D.C., like, go to it. It's, it's awesome. Oh, neat. Soak yeah. it up, man. Cool. Yeah. But now that I know it's cursed, I, I don't want to go near it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us the story. So from the source Wondrium, I hope I said that right, daily, the acquisition of the diamond occurred during the Cold War and the public anxiety was high. I have a quote. Turn down the diamond, don't accept the hope. So apparently people oh. knew all about this stone and did not want it. Um, many letters were written to the Smithsonian and even President Eisenhower, while cartoonists portrayed the idea of the United States and Uncle Sam being cursed. <laughs> I thought that that was a little interesting to admit. <laughs> and here we are. And here we are. Yeah. Of course, many discounted the idea of a curse. However, in the months that followed, James Todd, the postman who delivered the package, suffered a series of misfortunes. His wife died, his leg was crushed, his dog was strangled, and, yeah, that's pretty sad, and his house burned down. Holy shit. All of a sudden, a lot of people became more interested in the possibility that the Hope Diamond was cursed. Well, yeah. Naturally. That's (laughs) so much. Yeah, that's a lot to happen to one person who's just delivering it, who didn't even own it. Yeah. Over the years, the Smithsonian did research, and they found out that the cursed story was actually made up, which I beg to differ, a modern folktale elaborated by French jeweler Pierre Cartier um, in Paris in 1910 to entice Evelyn Walsh McLean to buy the gem. She's one of us. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, he wove together several different stories from historical accounts, a British novel, and stories from the New York Times and London Times, and with that, concocted this crazy tale. He attributed deaths, revolutions, bankruptcy, and divorce to the stone's malevolent curse. So is the story really made up, or is he just exposing the truth about the gem? The blue diamond had originally been a roughly cut gem of about 112 carats when a French diamond merchant, Jean-Baptiste Tavernier, first acquired it in India in the mid-1600s. At the time, India was on, was the only source of diamonds in the world. Because I think now it's like Brazil and some other places yeah, that we get, yeah, yeah. We get diamonds I didn't from. know that. That's wild. Apparently, the Indians had elaborate ideas about gemstones, believing that they had protective powers. They did not cut gemstones the way we do. Instead, they tended to preserve as much of the stone as they could, only cutting out cracks and other imperfections. This was believed to maximize their ability to protect one from evil influences. The idea was that gems absorbed negative influences and contained them in the stone. Kind of like how we see crystals today. Right, right. Yeah, I was going to say that sounds familiar. Portuguese, French, Dutch, German, and English dealers and merchant traders rushed to India to get diamonds, but no one acquired more gems and made better deals than Tavernier. He made six trips to India between about 1630 and 1670. Returning to France after one of those trips in 1668, he met King Louis XIV of France at a newly built Versailles palace. I thought that that was really cool. Yeah. (laughs) He sold the king the 112 carat blue diamond along with about 200 other diamonds. Like, what the fuck does he need all those for? (laughs) That's a deal. Yeah. Crap. A big blue diamond like the Hope was incredibly rare. 
Recall that Louis XIV was called the Sun King if you have been to Versailles, which I have not. He viewed his reign as one of enlightenment, of letting the light of divine kinship, of letting knowledge, beauty, and arts shine. At Versailles, the glass chandeliers are exquisitely cut to reflect and reflect the light. For diamonds, it was the same thing. King Louis XIV accumulated the greatest collection of crown jewels in the continent. That's, like, believable, especially since he just got 200-plus this big-ass yeah. diamond. Extra. He had the best gem cutters who knew how to use the stone reflective and refractive properties to let the light out of the diamond and let it shine. He had Tavernier's blue diamond cut down from roughly 112 carats to a symmetrical, beautiful gem of 67 carats. So it took, like, a That's a yeah. lot. That's, almost, like, half. Almost cut yeah, that's a lot. What did... What, where did the pieces go? Are, were they were they like salvageable into stuff? Were they probably not? I guess not. Because when I was reading, they they talked about how he hired people that used like specific oil and stuff to like grind the stone oh, so to it give just it its shine. Like powder. Yeah. So yeah, powder, uh, not really cuts. That which is depressing. Uh, uh, I feel like it's yeah. sad. It hurts me. <laughs> It was recorded in the Royal Inventory and renamed the French Blue, valued at about $3.6 million in today's currency. Louis XIV wore it simply from a ribbon hanging from his neck or on a brooch. Like, why the fuck would you put it on a ribbon? What if it fell off? It's a flex. It's all It's all it is. Apparently he was super fancy, so whatever. The fanciest man. The diamond was passed down as a part of the French crown jewels to King Louis XV in and Louis XVI, obviously. These two kings wore the diamond as a part of their knightly decoration, something called the Order of the Golden Fleece. There are stories that this blue diamond was worn by Queen Marie Antoinette, but there's absolutely no evidence of that. She and her husband were imprisoned after the outbreak of the French Revolution, as we know, and the crown jewels were put in a warehouse, publicly exhibited, and then in September of 1792, they were all stolen. Oh, damn. Yeah. Oops. When Napoleon later became Emperor of France, obviously after they got murdered Mm -hmm. um, or killed, he swore to recover all the French crown jewels, including the blue diamond, but failed. He nor anyone else could find the French blue. The blue diamond went missing for some 20 years until a smaller 45 carat blue diamond turned up in London in 1812. In the possession of an English diamond merchant named Daniel Eliasson. Lyason didn't say where it came from, but there was speculation that it was cut down from the French blue. This 45 carat blue diamond, as drawn in a document of the time, is the same one in the Smithsonian today. Eliasson sold the blue diamond to British King George IV. George IV celebrated the diamond as a trophy for defeating his enemy Napoleon. He wore the blue diamond in a new golden fleece decoration. The British king, though, was a spender and almost went bankrupt while he was on the throne. So he basically took, like, all of his family's money. After the king died in 1830, the Duke of Wellington had to sell the blue diamond to pay off all of his debts. He sold it to Henry Philip Hope, a great diamond collector. Hope set the diamond in a medallion with a hanging pearl. That sounds very pretty. Yeah. yeah. He simply called the blue diamond number one. Oh. He had no originality. No. None. But after some years, it became known as the Hope Diamond. The Hope family was among England's wealthiest... They accumulated land, castles, Dutch and Flemish paintings, and other riches. But in the course of a few generations, they wasted that great wealth. 
as most of the story has been going. Yeah, everyone's going bankrupt. <laughs> yeah. In 1887, the diamond was inherited by Lord Francis Hope, Henry Philip Hope's great-grandnephew. Francis bet badly on horses, oh. business enterprises, and an American showgirl wife, May Yohi. He lost his fortune and his wife, and after a series of court cases, he was allowed to sell the Hope Diamond. It was purchased by New York jeweler Joseph Frankel's son and company in 1901. Frankel's hoped to make a quick sale and a big profit, as they'd put up much of their business capital to buy the Hope Diamond. Instead, the overvalued diamond sat in their vault. Oh... In 1907, Banker's Panic, which is essentially a recession, took a toll on its company. Frankel was diamond rich but cash poor and going bankrupt. The first stories about the Hope Diamond being unlucky came in the financial pages of the New York Times in 1908. The Chronicle noted that the gem was responsible for Frankel's failure. Other newspapers in Washington and London picked up the story and made it increasingly elaborate. Speaking of influence and power of the mysterious diamond that unleashed evil upon those who possessed it. These stories blamed the executions of Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette, um, which I would blame that on buying a stone if I had all of that background research on it. I would be like, yo, there has to be some reason all this crazy shit happened. <laughs> right. So what did everybody have? Process of elimination. They had yeah. the fucking Hope Diamond. And Hope's bankruptcy and divorce. And Finkel's collapse on the malevolent influence of the Blue Diamond. Like... It's just insane that they have a common denominator. Like, they oh, all yeah. have the same. Right. They're all, they all have a freaking diamond, and they all, their lives sucked. <laughs> they all had some shit happen to them. <laughs> they all just made poor life choices. Yeah. The Hope Diamond was finally sold at a bargain price to other diamond dealers, finally coming to the Cartier brothers in Paris. Pierre Cartier was enchanted with the novel The Moonstone, written decades earlier by English author... Wiki Collins. In Collins' story, a large yellow diamond had formed the eye of an idol of a Hindu deity in a temple in India. The diamond literally embodied the power of the god. There it rested until it was looted by a Muslim conqueror and taken to his treasury. Then years later, British colonial soldiers looted the treasury in battle, taking the diamond back to England. There, tragedy, murder, kidnapping, and insanity followed the possession of the ill-gotten gem. It sounds very familiar, this story. The god had cursed the stone, and an evil force would emanate rays from the stone and strike misfortune upon all who owned it until the gem was properly returned to the deity back in India. Finally, Indian Hindu priests received the diamond and brought it back home. This story by Collins was a cautionary tale about divine or supernatural payback for the immorality of colonialism. These were the historical and fictional elements that Cartier combined when he approached Evelyn and Ned McLean in 1910. Cartier applied the Moonstone story to the Hope Diamond, telling the couple it was cursed by a Hindu god and embellished it a bit more, blaming the French, the Turkish, and other revolutions on its influence. Evelyn was entranced by Cartier's story, and she decided later to buy the diamond. What a dummy. Like, I, I, if somebody's telling me something's cursed, I'm not going to be like, yeah, I'm going to buy it. <laughs> oh, that's a great purchase and <laughs> like, choice. Like, that just sounds stupid to me. But whatever. Although, honestly, in the beginning, you were like, oh, yeah, he just kind of cobbled this all together. Like, 
either you laid this out really well or it just like yeah it's kind of cursed <laughs> yeah exactly right. like yeah, that's exactly. what i'm saying really like i don't know or... i don't know if he actually made it up because it seems like it was actually cursed like yeah it's... maybe he didn't know the background and then he was just like yeah it's cursed and then <laughs> then they like dug deep when it came to the smithsonian they're like shit maybe it is really cursed. <laughs> The McLeans were amongst the richest families in the United States, owning banks, real estate, and the Washington Post. In addition to homes in Newport, Rhode Island, Bar Harbor, Maine, and Palm Beach, Florida. They, owned they basically a, just owned yeah, they owned every, expensive every, shit Jesus everywhere. Christ. All the houses. They exemplified the later years of the Gilded Age using flaunting and even, some would say, wasting their gigantic fortune on over-the-top spending. Sound familiar? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like the guy that got his head cut off. Sounds like, like all like, of them. Yep. Evelyn wore the diamond at extravagant parties, parading the diamond around Washington, and made much of it publicly until 1919. It was then that her 10-year-old son, Vincent, was struck down and killed by a car near Washington, D.C. That, wow. That's sad. Yeah, now that's, that's a bummer. Newspapers proclaimed that maybe the Hope Diamond was really cursed, and they wondered who would next be struck with the diamond's curse. It was as if all the negative energy that was locked inside the uncut diamond had now been unleashed upon its possessors mm. because of the cutting, like we said earlier when we were talking. Like, those, the Indian customs said that once you start cutting things away, it doesn't protect you the way it used to protect you. That's, that's cool. The idea was that somehow the wealthy, who had flaunted their wealth by obtaining the treasures of others, were now getting their comeuppance from higher supernatural powers. The cursed story was only amplified by the ensuing events. Ned McLean went insane, and the family lost the Washington Post in bankruptcy, despite Evelyn trying to use the Hope Diamond as collateral for a loan. Over the years, Evelyn used the diamond for charitable purposes. Seeing or holding it was the prize for buying it at a raffle ticket or attending a benefit. That was a good idea on her part, you know? Man, I mean, she's using it to to acquire more wealth, yeah. which I feel like is smart. Yeah. But it, it just kind of smacks of like, peasant, you may now touch the royal diamond. You may kiss it upon my royal finger. Like, that's it's funny. Just, like, it's gross. I think that's gross. <laughs> She lent the diamond to brides as something blue. I thought that was pretty cute. Wow. She even had her great Dane, Mike, wear the diamond around his neck. <laughs> Mike. In Evelyn's autobiography, she expressed her ambivalence about the Hope Diamond, sometimes not believing in the curse and other times wondering if the curse was all payback. In 1946, another tragedy struck. Evelyn's daughter, Evie, committed suicide. Oh. That's really sad. Yeah, man. Evelyn died in 1947, only a year after her daughter died. And the estate sold the Hope Diamond to Harry Winston. A decade later, the diamond came to the Smithsonian. It came with a setting crafted by Cartier and 16 1 and 1 fourth carat diamonds surrounding the main blue stone and a necklace of 42 diamonds set in platinum. It's loaded. Yeah. It's full. <laughs> mm -hmm. The curator of the Smithsonian said, quote, since the arrival of the Hope Diamond, the National Gem Collection has grown steadily in size and stature and is today considered by many to be the finest public display of gems in the world. For the Smithsonian, the Hope Diamond has obviously been a source of good luck. Not wanting to disturb the peace of the curse, maybe perhaps we should all agree to leave it in the Smithsonian. Yeah, but let's talk about something a lot less valuable than a diamond, and let's talk about a chair. The next story is The Chair of Death, The Curse oh. of Thomas Bubsy's Chair. Well, I didn't know that that's where it was going. <laughs> that's exactly where it's going. The Chair of Death. 
In the year 1702, darkness tainted the air of North Yorkshire as Thomas Bubsy, a man consumed by wickedness, committed a gruesome act. His wrath knew no bounds as he brutally murdered both his father-in-law and his partner in a heinous crime they frequently indulged in. Little did he know that his vile deeds would birth a haunting belief that would terrorize the people for centuries to come. What is it? Well, tell that's me a what fantastic intro. Go it ahead, tell me so more. The tale of Thomas Bubsy has etched itself into the very fabric of the region's folklore, whispers circulating among the villagers warning of a cursed chair, a chair that had once been the favored seat of murderous Bubsy. Those unfortunate souls who had dared rest upon its tainted embrace would find themselves plagued by unspeakable horrors. Legends paint a chilling picture of the chair's malevolence. Those who succumbed to its curse faced tragic accidents, tormented by their own minds until they succumbed to despair and even perished from the grips of deadly disease. The curse of Bubsy's chair, it seemed, was an all-encompassing darkness that clung to those who dared tempted fate. Basically, this darkness started right at your ass. As soon as you planted your ass on that seat, oh my gosh. you were going to die. That's a nice way of saying it. Started like at that. your ass. Terrifying tales emerged from those who dared sit upon the accursed chair. They claimed to have heard whispers, faint echoes of Bubsy's voice drifting through the air, a spectral reminder of his malevolence. The words seeping from the abyss proclaimed a sinister decree. May death come to anyone who dares to sit in my chair. Yet the tale of the chair's curse was entwined with another tale of treachery and deceit. Daniel Audie, a local man entangled in a life of crime, harbored a desperate love for his daughter, Elizabeth. Together they delved into a world of theft and counterfeiting, their crimes casting a shadow over their existence. When 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 you say love, do you mean like like paternal love or like incest love? Paternal love. Okay. Yes. Because one is cool and the other one's like, oh no, it's going to be one of those stories. (laughs) But as the fickle hand of fate would have it, Elizabeth's heart was stolen by none other than Thomas Bubsy, a man who was not only her love, but also her father's partner in their nefarious deeds. Discord writhed between them as they quarreled over the division of their ill-gotten gains, their once united front now fractured by greed. So... Thomas Bubsy was Elizabeth's father's partner in crime for stealing shit and doing all kinds of yeah. heinous acts. And she was in love with Thomas. But now this united front of awfulness between these two men are breaking because they're quarreling over what are we doing with the money? What are we oh. doing with this shit that we're stealing? The night Daniel Audie paid a visit to the inn where Thomas Bubsy and Elizabeth resided would be the final chapter of his story. Whispers and conflicting tales surrounded that fateful encounter. Some claim Daniel arrived with the intention of reclaiming his daughter, while others suggest he sought only a casual visit. Regardless, none could foresee the horrors that awaited them. Thomas Bubsy, still intoxicated from a debauched rivalry with his comrades, stumbled upon his father-in-law seated in his cherished chair. Oh no. Emotions fueled by alcohol and unquenched rage surged within him. An eruption of violence ensued, a savage clash that Elizabeth, powerless and hopeless, could only bear witness to. In the aftermath of the struggle, Daniel's realization of Bubsy's drunken state halted the chaos. An uneasy calm settled, and Daniel, seeking respite from the darkness, excused himself to return to his own abode. But little did he know that the tendrils of his own impeding doom had already tightened their grip. Thomas Bubsy, 
his intoxicated mind still aflame with fury, could only bear the thought of Daniel's escape. Enraged, he pursued his father-in-law, hammer in hand, until they reached the threshold of Daniel's dwelling. It was there, in the chilling embrace of night, that Bubsy unleashed a relentless torrent of violence upon Daniel's defenseless form. Blow after blow rained upon him until life itself had been extinguished, leaving only a lifeless husk surrounded by the macabre artwork of crimson. When the truth of Daniel's demise was uncovered, Thomas Bubsy stood accused, a prime suspect in a crime stained with blood. The justice of the era deemed him guilty, and his sentence was only one-way path to the gallows. But before his final breath was claimed, Bubsy sought a moment to enact his last malevolent act. With a twisted desire, he returned to the inn that had been his sanctuary, a haven of darkness that housed his beloved chair. There, in the suffocating presence of the imminent demise, he extended his final wish. Bubsy's footsteps echoed through the desolate inn as he approached the chair, his fingers caressing its cursed wood. And from the depths of his wicked soul, he cast forth a chilling curse, a curse that would forever bind the chair and seal the fate of any who dared rest upon its unhallowed seat. He was finally hung just outside of the inn, right pretty much soon, very soon after he cursed the chair. Wow. Could it be possible that the chair was cursed before? Like, it's like possible. He I had mean, the chair and while he sat in it and just loved it so much and blah 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 blah. Is he, it possible that he the curse, himself maybe just got darker and yeah, darker? Yeah, like darker. as if the and chair was, kind of took over him and made him believe that this chair was like his and it had to be his. Blah blah blah. That's you very know? possible. Who knows? No that's, one knows. Like, no one has any idea where this chair came from, who made it. Insane. It was just there at the inn where he stayed, and that's where his residence was, and that was his favorite seat. Crazy. His unholy ass leeching bad vibes into the yeah. chair. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, it's so intense to think about. But the story goes further. Some sources attribute up to 60 kills from the chair. Oh, wow. What? The stories of people who died after sitting in this chair are numerous, and the details of their deaths vary widely. Among them, a chimney sweep in 1894 who, after drinking at the inn's bar, then decided to sit in Bubsy's chair, was found dead the next day, hanging from the front post of the inn. What the heck? His death was considered a suicide, but residents chalked up his death to the Bubsy curse. Many soldiers during World War II who sat in Bubsy's chair did not return, and the residents also speculated that they received the curse of Bubsy's chair. Two young airmen who spent the night sitting and relaxing and chatting with each other, they both used Bubsy's chair, and both were found dead in a car accident while on their way back to the airbase. A delivery driver who delivers goods to the inn didn't know anything about the Bubsy curse, and one day he came to the inn, he started delivering some stuff, and he was a bit tired, he just sat in the chair for a few minutes, took a little breather, and then continued on his way. Really um, do it. But ended up dying in a car accident less than a few hours later. Wow. Other stories, such as a cleaning lady diagnosed with a brain tumor, cyclists and motorcyclists crashing and dying after sitting in a chair, exhausted hitchhikers, a man in his 30s dying from a massive heart attack, and a group of builders, one took the dare to sit in the chair, later falling through the roof of a building and dying soon after. The amount of death surrounding people whose asses have touched the wood on this chair is insane. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. But due to the string of misfortunes that followed anyone who dare sit upon it, the chair of death was eventually suspended from the ceiling as a precautionary measure. Oh my god. The Why field... don't you just throw it out? It's like so much easier. 
That's just gonna bash it to pieces. Well, it's now in a museum uh, in the Yorkshire area, and they have the chair, and they literally they don't they didn't want anyone to sit on it, so they literally hoisted it from the ceiling, and it's now up high. Well, at least they took measures to make yeah. sure nobody yeah. died. Fair enough. It, there was a huge fear of you know triggering tra- traumatic accidents and death, and so it's in the uh, Thirsk Museum, where it remains to this day, hanging from the ceiling. But the question lingers. Would any of you be willing to take the risk of sitting on Bubsy's deadly stoop chair? Fuck no. <laughs> Fuck no. Depends on the day. How <laughs> <laughs> tired am I? Well, now we are at the part for the spooky fan story. Spooky Woo-hoo. fan story. Do, 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 do. Jordan, whose story do we have today? So today we got a really awesome listener named Leslie. Um, her story starts... Hey guys, I'm an avid listener and I would like to share my first paranormal encounter with you. I was about three or four years old. I know this because my brother wasn't born yet and he's five years younger than me. I was sleeping with my parents in their bed one night. This was in the late 70s and my parents had one of those big ass old school water beds. (laughs) I was sleeping in between them and their bedroom door was open. You could see all the way down the hallway if you were laying on the bed. I woke up for some reason and peered down the hallway. A dim light came on in the hallway. Not the hallway light, but a light source seemed to be coming from somewhere else overhead. At the end of the hallway, I saw a hand reach around the corner and a face look straight at me. Oh, fuck no. The face was beige colored and the features were terrifying. The eyes were vertically messy, drawn on half-stitched up lines. No nose and the mouth was similar to the eyes, but only going horizontal. It just looked at me. I woke my parents up crying and terrified, and they hugged me back to sleep, telling me to be quiet. I am 47 years old now, and I still remember that face like it was yesterday. Thank you for allowing me a place to share my childhood trauma. This was my first time I've ever written of it. Stay spooky and don't turn on the hallway light. Leslie Nelson. <laughs> oh, that's... Okay, I love I the love ending that to so that. Much. I love the stay spooky. I love the don't turn on the hallway light. Uh, Leslie, thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Thank you so much for allowing us to trusting us read it. Yeah, <laughs> to read it. yeah that was and so good. I love that our listeners are now sharing their first encounter because usually, like someone's first encounter is like the most terrifying. Yeah, and yeah. And seeing that creature would terrify the fuck out of me yeah. even now, mm-hmm. <laughs> not just as a kid. So, but thank you so much for sharing your first encounter with us. That was a really cool story. I am so sorry you had to see something that terrifying, especially as a kid. Um, but really cool story and thank you for sending it in and thank you for listening to us they're yes. an avid listener I like that she said that <laughs> I love that yay Leslie yay as a reminder to all of you um, just like Leslie did please send in your spooky fan stories to ghostencounterstories at gmail.com or you can write to us on social either works um, you can remain anonymous if you wish I know some stories might be a little personal or you might not want to have your name tied to it doesn't matter you can be anonymous that's no problem yep. and uh don't forget to check out the Pride merch that we have on our website, ghost-encounters.com. Click on the Spooky Shop, and there's also a podcast episode uh, shirt. It's really cool. We want to do more podcast episode uh, merch. merch. Yeah, um, It's going to be really cool. And, uh, yeah, thank you all so much for listening. Please give us five stars wherever you're listening. Share it around. Um, if you have any ideas of things you want to listen or hear about or want us to do research on, let us know. Yeah. Uh, we'd love it. We love extra topic ideas. Absolutely. 
And yeah. Hannah, thanks for coming on. Oh my god, it was great to be here. I, I love when you guys let me uh, like participate. I you love when you're on because you're always so passionate about what and you're talking brings, about. And she brings like the shit that you don't know about. So like she yeah. came on, on and I, like I think before too, she just started talking about some shit. And I'm like, I've never even fucking heard of this stuff. And it has like the coolest storyline, yeah. story base. Uh, that I love the stuff that I haven't heard before. Like I, because I listen to a lot of podcasts, yeah. so I hear you know, and everybody wants to cover it. Everybody wants to talk about all the really cool stuff, and you know, sometimes there's just you know. Yeah, but I like the non-mainstream stuff that you know about. That's what I like. Bring me the. And you witch. always bring the passion yes. with you. The enthusiasm. enthusiasm. Yes. <laughs> Jinx. Jinx, go. you owe me a ghost. Stay <laughs> spooky. Oh. It's, it's a pleasure, guys. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Yes. Awesome. Well, I know we will have you on again soon. Um, but unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Stay spooky. Don't touch anything cursed. And if you found it in the woods, leave it in the woods. <laughs>